Lord. Praise the Lord, everybody. Amen. Praise the Lord, everybody. It is always good to be in the house of the Lord with his people. But you know, it's, it's especially good in the middle of Holy Week. Now, you know, we're apostolic and uh, we've been filled with the Holy Ghost. We celebrate resurrection every day. But there is something about taking some time for just focusing our minds and focusing our remembrance upon what the Lord has done, upon his sacrifice at Calvary, and upon his resurrection and the power of it all. And when you start to think on those lines, uh, it just gets a little bit overwhelming. And uh, I don't know about you, but thankfulness just wells up in my heart for what the Lord has done. And uh, it, it's good for us to remember afresh and anew what the Lord has done and to take time to do it. So uh, I'm excited to be here tonight. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read again. And uh, we've been going through this the last couple of weeks. I'm going to read again from Exodus 12. And I'm going to read kind of a lengthy passage again, but I want, um, I want everyone to have the context, whether you've been here the last couple of weeks or not, this is the first one that you're hearing. I I want you to have the context of, of what is happening here. And, uh, this of course is the initial observance of the Passover. This is where the ordinance was given to Israel. And this as is as the Lord was preparing to finally deliver them from their Egyptian bondage. They had been in slavery for over 400 years. They had cried out to the Lord. He had heard their plea and he had been showing himself uh, strong in the face of Pharaoh. And this is the final showdown, if you will. And the Lord says, I'm going to execute judgment in Egypt, but I'm going to provide you a way of escape. And this is where he describes it. Exodus chapter 12. The Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month, they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for an house. And if the household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of souls. Every man according to his eating shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. The whole congr- the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening and they shall take of the blood and strike it on the two side posts and on the upper doorpost of the houses wherein they shall eat it. And they shall eat the flesh in that night, roast with fire and unleavened bread and with bitter herbs shall they eat it, eat not of it raw nor sodden at all with water, but roast with fire, his head with his legs and with the pertinence thereof. And ye shall let nothing of it remain until the morning. And that which remaineth of it until the morning you shall burn with fire. And thus shall you eat it with your loins girded, your shoes on your feet, your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. And the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. And this day shall be unto you for a memorial. And you shall keep it a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it a feast by an ordinance forever. And everybody said, Amen. 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 Lord bless you. You can be seated. This is 
probably, as we have said, the, the central example of where the idea of uh, the Lamb of God comes from. It all echoes back to this Passover. And uh, we know that, and we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, from the very beginning, the Lord had uh, demonstrated to Adam and Eve and through uh, the remainder of their generations, that sin was destructive. It separated from the presence of God. And when it separated them from the presence of God, it also separated them from the source of life. And Paul would articulate in the Romans, in his letter to the Romans, and say the wages of sin is death. And when we begin to consider sin, you know, one of the things that... Um, Maybe it's a challenge sometimes when we are dealing with our own young people to communicate the destructiveness of sin. Because at a young age and with a level of immaturity and a lack of perspective, having not seen enough real life, sin just looks attractive and it looks like a good time. And there is, uh, while certainly the most significant consequence of sin is eternal death and destruction, what we also need to understand and be able to articulate is that sin brings about immediate temporal pain as well. And uh, we see that just in observing the world around us. We see everyone clamoring to live. I, I should have the right to live the way I want to live, they say. I want, don't want anybody telling me what to do. I want to do what I want to do. I want to live the way I want to live. And yet, without fail, we see destruction and misery and pain when that choice is taken. And sin just has a way of destroying and enslaving us. And it is in our very nature until we have been uh, born again, until we've been redeemed, until we've been regenerated by the power of the Holy Ghost. And when that work is ultimately completed at the resurrection, that will be the final answer. But until then, we struggle with these sinful natures that we have. And, uh, you know, I have used this example to the weariness of my wife, but I'm going to go for it again. Because it is, to me, it is a perfect example. And I may have even mentioned it here before, but it is in your nature. It's in your, it's encoded. It is a, um, just a reflex. It's a part of your nature. It's in your nervous system for you to breathe. And you may make up your mind because you're stubborn and you're hard headed that you're not going to breathe and you hold your breath. Some Little ones try this sometimes, right? They're going to get back at you by not breathing. I don't know. It's no logic there, but whatever. And you can hold your breath. But you know, there's something that kicks in at some point. You lose consciousness. Your will dissolves away. And your nervous system takes over and you begin to breathe again. And you may pass out, you may become unconscious, you may fall out in the floor, but if you don't bump your head too hard, you're going to start breathing again because it is innate, it's in your nature. And some of us, as we made our way through life, we realized that sin is destructive and that it's causing us a lot of pain. And so we made up our mind we weren't going to sin anymore. But what we discovered is that we were actually enslaved in sin. And that it was a part of our nature. And some of us were more hard-headed than others. And we might have some success for a season and not committing this act or that act. And we had observed that when we did some things that caused us pain and caused us misery, we just made up our mind we weren't going to do that. But sure enough, just like holding our breath, there came a point at which my will was overwhelmed by my nature. And somebody pulled out in front of me in traffic or somebody did something on the job. Somehow something, what's the word they use now? Something triggered me. And my nature took over. And in spite of all of my best judgment, I did what I said I was not going to do again. Why is that? It's because of our nature. It's because it's 
ingrained in us until we have the power of the Holy Ghost, we are not able to overcome sin. In the physical, this is where Israel saw themselves when they were in Egypt. They were enslaved in sin and it didn't matter how badly they did not want to be in Egypt. They were enslaved in Egypt, just as we were enslaved in sin. And uh, they cried out and the Lord came and sent a rescuer to help them. And a complicated story. They got aggravated at the one the Lord sent. And you know how people are. We just are that way. And uh, But what we read tonight is, of course, familiar to most of us in the story of this Passover lamb as God is rescuing them from being enslaved in a physical, to a physical slavery, he was also demonstrating to us what he was going to do for us spiritually. So the first Passover had a very real and a very practical meaning for the Israelites. God was pouring out judgment on the nation of uh, Egypt, but he made a way of escape and he provided a protection for the Israelites. And we focus a lot when we talk about this, we focus on the, the blood and how they struck it on the doorposts and, and, uh, that's all fitting. But I have just been, I guess, uh, my imagination, my thinking has been intrigued by the instructions that came with the way they were to eat the lamb. One of the things in our reading tonight, you'll notice they were to strike it upon the, the blood on the doorposts, but it was very specific that they were to strike it upon the doorposts of the house where they would eat the lamb. In other words, this was there was a whole picture that was taking place here. And the Lord was doing things in a very orderly way. He wanted them putting blood on the doorpost of the house. And he wanted them consuming the lamb inside that house. He was making a way of escape for them, but he had a specific order. And um, there's some implications of of that, but the, the, uh, I'm trying to resist tonight going on down too many rabbit trails because I've got somewhere I need to get, you know, and I, I, y'all are going to get weary on me if I'm not careful. But the, when the Lord gave them this command, he said, strike the blood on the doorpost where you're going to eat it. And then he gave them this command that they were to eat all of it. And I started thinking about that. It's not too many times in scripture that you see that sort of a command. Now, there are a lot of different ideas about what God is like in the world. Most of them are informed, again, by our fallen human nature. And it's as though we, uh, most people, I think, their image of God is that he is the keeper of the lightning bolts. You know, he sits up there high and he just doles them out as we need to be struck. He just strikes. And But really, if 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 you study the Bible and, and you have a relationship with the Lord, what you discover is that God's actually very generous and, and he blesses and he, he gives grace. And, um, even what does he say in, in Matthew chapter five, he says, you ought to be like your father in heaven who causes the sun to shine on the evil and the good. And he causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. Yeah. Yeah. We've probably all, myself included, said, well, you know, looked at that as kind of a negative thing. Well, you know, good things happen to, or bad things happen to good people. It rains on the just and the unjust. We just kind of shrug our shoulders. That's not what he's saying at all. He's saying that our Father pours out blessings, general blessings, available to all of humanity. He causes the sun to shine on the evil and the good, and he causes it to rain on the just and the unjust. He, there are some blessings from God that are just for anybody. And we are all blessed by them. He puts breath in all of our lungs. And um, it's ironic, even those that will use every ounce of their strength to argue against the existence of God, in some manner, because they are God's creation, they actually testify to the greatness of God. And the more involved and the more subtle their arguments become in their fighting against the existence of God, the greater testimony they are to the greatness of God. Isn't that isn't it beautiful the way the Lord just kind of does things? But he pours out blessings on everybody. And there were, there were Old Testament um, precedents for this. 
In Leviticus, the Lord said, told the children of Israel, he's giving them some regulations about how they ought to live. He says, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field, neither shall you gather the gleanings of the harvest. In other words, don't, when you go to harvest in your field, don't be too careful. You need to leave some things in the field. And he says, Leviticus 19.10, Thou shalt not glean thy vineyard, neither shalt thou gather every grape of thy vineyard, but you shall leave them for the poor and the stranger. I am the Lord your God. And what the Lord was saying was, I'm generous with you. You don't have to hoard everything to yourself. If you'll just just trust me. There's more where that came from. I'm going to take care of it. And, and leave some for the less fortunate, the one who doesn't have a field, the one who doesn't have a vineyard. Leave a little bit because there may be a stranger coming through that doesn't really have a place to stay and hasn't had anything to eat in a day or so. And they might find something in your field that would sustain them. And so be mindful of those. Deuteronomy is Moses literally means the second law or the giving of the law the second time. Moses is summarizing he's going over everything he knows he's not going to be able to go into the promised land i used to i gave my mom a bad time because i got to be a senior in high school she realized i was going to go off to college so she was reiterating everything she ever told me for that whole year you know before i left for school got to say i said what are you cramming for finals or what's the deal you you act like you you know you're trying to make sure all this stuff took moses is he's cramming for finals because he's fixing to pass off the scene and he wants to make sure that they get it and he says to them when you cut down your harvest in your field and you forgot a sheaf in the field thou shalt not go again to fetch it it shall be for the stranger for the fatherless for the widow That the Lord thy God may bless thee in all the work of thine hands. When you beatest your olive tree, thou shalt not go over the boughs again. Don't just try to get every olive off the branches. These are for the stranger, for the fatherless, for the widow. When you gather your grapes, thou shalt not glean it afterwards. It's for the stranger, for the fatherless, for the widow. He says, remember that you were a bondman in the land of Egypt. And I command you to do this thing. You know what it is like to... Work in a harvest where you don't get to consume the fruit of the harvest. You labored and you labored overly. You overly exerted yourself for a harvest that wasn't even yours. But now this is yours. Just be generous. Don't try to hoard everything and allow, allow the land to sustain you and trust in me. It's a beautiful picture of generosity. So it kind of flies in the face of what the Lord says here about that they would not leave any of it until the morning, that they don't let any of it remain, and any part of it that remains, they are to burn with fire. And I think this this is this sacrifice, there's something special here. This is not just the normal harvest, but there is something special going on. First of all, I think the message of this is that we don't really get to pick and choose what parts of the lamb that we want. There is a, there is a wholeness that we have to be willing to accept all of it. And we don't get to be like a picky little toddler picking through our food, deciding what we want and what we don't want. And, and you remember in the New Testament at the Last Supper, the Lord Gave them the bread. He said, this is my body. And then he gave them the cup. And he told them, he said, drink all of it. Drink even down to the dregs. Take it all. Some of it's pleasant. Some of it's not pleasant. But you need it all. And I I think there is a message here for us as New Testament believers that we need to be thankful for pastors and for leaders who will declare unto us the whole counsel of God. We live in a world where that is the exception and not the rule. If you want, if you want to get together, I almost said a church, but I, let me just say it like this. If you want to get together with people who only talk about a part of the word, you can find those on any street corner just about. Those kinds of leaders are a dime a dozen. But Paul said, I will not be I will not be held, I will be blameless before all men for one reason, because I did not shun to declare unto you the whole counsel of God. 
Amen. There are concepts that are necessary and they may be less pleasant to our humanity, but they are necessary nonetheless. You know, the writer of the book of Hebrews enumerated what some of those were in chapter 6. He said, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on to perfection or maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. Now he says, not laying again. There is an assumption that these foundational elements have been put in place in our life. And Paul says, once we have this foundation laid, we can build, we can go on to maturity, we can build on that foundation. But let me tell you, if these things have not been put into your life, you need these first. And that's the very context of this passage. The the doctrine of Christ, the foundation of repentance from dead works, of faith toward God, of baptisms and of laying on of hands and of resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. We need it all. Some people say, well, you know, I want to go to church to be encouraged. Hey, sometimes more than being encouraged, we need to be warned of judgment that is to come. We need to be warned about things that are going to get us into trouble. And we should be thankful for leaders, for pastors after the heart of God who are willing to talk about unpleasant things like sin and call sin sin because sin is destructive and if it's left unchecked it will destroy us the wages of sin is death it separates us from god it will destroy our lives in this world and it will prevent us from having life in the world to come i want to hear the word of god i want to hear the whole counsel of god and not only everything that's in the book but i i want Uh, I want pastors, and I'm thankful for pastors that hear the voice of God to say it in the right time and in the right spirit where we need to hear it. That's part of the counsel of God as well, not just the content, but the timing. Amen? And so in Exodus, the command was, don't leave any of it until the morning. And, And really, he said, Roast it all together. Keep it whole. There is an integrity to the word of God. It must be considered as a whole and not picked apart and pulled out of context. You can pull verses and chapters and books out of context in the Bible and make a doctrine for anything that you want. But you need to have leadership and the voice of God in your life that will bring you the whole Counsel, Not just the complete counsel, but everything strung together in the manner in which the Lord gave it to us. But there is another aspect of this, I think, also that is at hand. And that is that this Passover lamb was for a specific purpose. It was for protection from the judgment of God. And the things of God are to be valued. They are to be cared for. They are not to be left to chance. And they're not to be um, casually laid aside. And what the commandment to the children of Israel was, if you can't eat all of it, then what you need to do is gather up everything that's left over and destroy it. Because there is not to be some casual passerby that comes along that might be hungry And pick up part of this. Now, if there's gleanings in the field, that's a different story. But not the Passover lamb. And certainly, it is precious enough that we don't want it to be exposed to scavengers and animals that might come along and partake of it. But this lamb has been consecrated for a specific purpose. When we talk about holiness and we talk about... um, Living for God, we talk about two concepts. Theologians will talk about two concepts. One is justification, the other is sanctification. Justification is when God declares you to be right, when he declares you to be holy. But sanctification is this, and that occurs, by the way, that justification occurs in a moment of time. You express your faith in God, you cry out to him, you repent, you're baptized, you receive the spirit, you are justified. Sanctification is the process of being set apart from the rest of the world and dedicated to a particular purpose. 
Sometimes we, we chafe a little bit when the preacher says, you ought not go here or you ought not go there. You ought not do this. You ought not talk about that. You ought not watch this. You ought not. The, the reality is that really living the Christian life is a twofold thing. There are things that we need to be separated from. There are things that are detrimental to us. There are attitudes that we pick up when we watch certain things, when we go certain places, when we talk to certain people, when we partake of certain activities. There are uh, appetites and there are attitudes that are stirred up in us. And so we should avoid those things. And one reason why we do is because every resource that we have, except for the Holy Ghost, every resource that we have is scarce. What I mean by that is that there is a limitation to everything that we have. There is a limitation to my strength. There is a limitation to my intellect. There is a limit to my emotion. There is a limit to my money. There is a limit to my time. I only have so much of those things. And some, my wife may think I have more of some things than others. She thinks I have, I think she thinks I have more money and less emotion or something. I don't know, but, but we got to get these things all balanced out. But the, the point is, We only have a certain amount of energy, whether it's intellectual energy, emotional energy, even spiritual energy, that we can dedicate to something. So when when the pastor says, you ought not go here, you ought not get caught up in this, you ought not get caught up in that, one thing he's saying, well, we need to avoid sin and we need to stay away from evil things. But really, also, even if something is maybe not all that bad to do, maybe there's something better that you could use your limited resources on and you could dedicate yourself and you could be consecrated to something that would be pleasing to God and you would find fulfilling in your own life. So as believers, we have this, we have this twofold thing that we're trying to accomplish. We want to be separated from the world, but not just for the purpose of being a spectacle or just to be something that draws attention to ourselves, but we separate ourselves from the world so that we have the resources to dedicate ourselves to the things of God. That is consecration. We're setting ourselves, we're making ourselves available and, and we're dedicating ourselves to that purpose. It's kind of like... (laughs) If you have pets at home, I hope this is true. You have a set of dishes for the pets and one for the kids. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, the ones that are for the kids to eat off of, we treat those a little bit differently. I mean, for Fido, you just run down to PetSmart, throw the bowl in the floor, and whatever happens, happens. You bring stuff home for the kids, probably going to run it through the dishwasher, wash it off, and, and then you're going to keep it washed off. And hopefully if something happens to Fido's bowl, you don't take one of the kids' bowls unless you put a mark on it say, that's now Fido's bowl. But my point is that even in our own houses, we, we understand this idea of consecration. Because I have set these dishes and these implements apart for this purpose. It seems to be what's happening here in the book of Exodus is that the Lord is saying, this Passover lamb was called out from the flock. And he was set apart for four days. He was dedicated for a particular purpose. And I want this lamb consumed on that night in the house on which you have struck the blood on the doorpost. I want him consumed in that house on that night completely. There is no other purpose. This lamb was dedicated and consecrated to fulfill this particular purpose. God forbid we should ever try to use the things of God for any other purpose than what God intended them to be used for. God forbid that we should use them for our own personal gain, but rather that we are reaching for people who need to be redeemed, who need to be brought out from Egypt, who need to be freed from the power of sin. That was the purpose of the Passover lamb. And it was not to be used for any other purpose Casual or by some animal or something else. This was what the Lord had intended. Now, <coughs> now the interesting thing here, if they're going to consume all of the lamb in that night, there's some calculations that have to take place. And the Lord alludes to these in verse 4, verses 4 and 5 
of Exodus chapter 12. He says, if the household be too little for the lamb, keep in mind, you're going to have to eat the whole thing and leave none of it to morning. Let him and his neighbor next unto his house take it according to the number of souls. Every man, according to his eating, shall make your count for the lamb. So what the Lord was saying is if you can't consume all of this lamb on this night, then a couple of households go together and count the number of souls and, and count every man according to his eating, according to his appetite. What's your, what is your appetite for the lamb? What do you, what do you need from the Lord? Goes into your calculation of what, you know, it's kind of like Easter lunch, right? Got to know how many people are coming and you got to know who they are. Sometimes a head count is not sufficient. You got to know who they are. Maybe we need an extra ham. So the question was, when I start looking at the Passover lamb, is it, am I really going to be able to do Am I going to be able to absorb all of this? Or is there going to be some left over that I need to take and go to my next door neighbor with and say, hey, come join with me. I've got a little too much lamb. (laughs) Well, I don't know about you, but it leaps off the page at me. The lamb that we're talking about now is way too much for my household. There will never be enough I think I have overwhelming and great needs, but what I have found in my life when I go to the Lord with my great need, he meets my need and there's still lamb left over. Amen. When I try to, I take him everything I can think to take to him, there's still lamb left over. I still have an obligation to reach out to somebody else and say, hey, we can't leave any of this. This has all been, the Lord has provided all of these great things for us and he's dedicated them to us for this purpose and we've got to take care of it in this time frame. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the appointed time. We've got to consume this now. There is an urgency that says, hey, I've got lamb left over. Do you have something that would benefit from consuming some of this lamb that I know. The Apostle Paul was writing, talking about the greatness of the new covenant. And he said, after he had enumerated several things about how great the new covenant was, he said, well, then in all of that, then what advantage hath the Jew? I mean, What is the advantage of being a Jew? And then he answered his own question. He said, much every way. Well, if you were to ask me tonight, in what way is our lamb greater? In what way is our lamb bigger? In what way is our lamb too big for the house? I would borrow Paul's answer and I would say much every way. Just about every way that you can think of, he is greater. I want to look at three different ways really quickly as we come to a close tonight. The first way that our lamb is greater is in purpose. Now, if you notice in the Old Testament, we touched on this in week one. The lamb and the sacrifices throughout the Old Testament had slightly different purposes. The lamb at Moriah was a substitute. The lamb in the Garden of Eden was a covering But at Moriah, it was a substitute. It was to stand in for sin. Now, Jesus certainly is our substitute. He took our place. He stood in for us. And um, Paul would say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, He hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. Jesus knew no sin, but he became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So he stood in and became our substitute, but he did a little more than that. He took away our sins. He who his own self, Peter said, bear our sins in his own body on the tree that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. So there was a substitutionary aspect to what Jesus did. 
we switch places. He said, you know that Paul said, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. How that though he was rich, he became poor for our sakes that we through his poverty might be rich. Have you ever thought about that trading of places that he was rich in holiness and in glory and in power and in majesty and in understanding and in all of these ways. And yet he limited himself to the body of a man and he became poor just like you and me He took on sin, not just not just the punishment of sin. The Bible is talking about something greater even than just the punishment for sin. He became sin because what he was trying to accomplish was making us the righteousness of God. That is a bargain I cannot conceive of. That's a substitution and a switch that I just cannot fathom. But more than a substitute, at Passover, the lamb became redemptive. It bought freedom from Egypt. And the Lord would, or Peter would say, you know that you were redeemed, not with corruptible things, it's silver and gold, received from your vain conversation, received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He became, he bought redemption, he brought us redemption, he bought us back, and he purchased the church of God. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. It's just kind of, you know, the Bible's really interesting if you pay attention. There's, there's little nuggets buried all in there. And, and Paul is talking in Acts chapter 20 and he says, he's giving instruction, said, Take heed to the flock over the which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers to feed the flock of God. The church of God, to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. There's just a little add-on sentence there on the end. Just a little nugget that's stuck in there. If you're just reading along, you may not pay attention. But what did he say? He said, feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. There's a little theology wrapped up in there. When Jesus came, he was not an angel or a messenger or some demigod or some lower form. When Jesus shed his blood on Calvary... The writer of the book of Acts says that was God purchasing his own church with his own blood. And so he became our redeemer as well. And of course, on the day of atonement, the sin was pushed ahead. But Jesus became the propitiation of all of our sins. John would write in his general epistle at the end, he says he is the propitiation or the... The substitute, he has taken our sins out of the way, not just the day of atonement, not just pushing them forward some period of time, but actually he has taken our sins completely out of the way. And John says, not our sins only, but the sins of the whole world. And that goes back to John 1, 29, when he saw Jesus coming to him, he said, behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. And that really is the second thing. Not only is Jesus greater in power, but he's also greater in domain. What I mean by domain is like a kingdom, the realm over which he operates and he, um, he rules. You would say a king is a king over a kingdom or a domain. Well, if you think about the Old Testament, the initial lamb at Moriah was a substitute for one man. Then at the Passover, it was for one family. But ultimately, the atonement was for the whole nation. But Jesus has come for the sins of the world. He's greater than all of that. Think about, think about this, the progression. In the Old Testament, the Lord gave them the tabernacle. And we've talked at length about the tabernacle. And he said, you're to offer sacrifice only in the tabernacle. And as Brother Ethan told us Sunday night, only in the place where I put my name there. I mean, he stirred me up Sunday night. The place where I put my name, that's where you'll sacrifice. Now, the heathen, they would go and sacrifice anywhere. They would grow groves and grow trees because they were worshiping nature and they would offer sacrifices anywhere. The Lord said, I don't want you doing like that. I want you to come to the one place where I will put my name. And when he gave them the tabernacle, that was the place that he put his name. But it was temporary and it was mobile and they would carry it along. Now, when it got to be 
nation grew, became more stable. David had a heart for God. And he said, you know, there's something not right. I live in a great palace and God's still in a tent. That's not right. He said, Lord, I want to build a house. I want to build a permanent dwelling place for you. And the Lord said, okay, I'll make you a compromise. I'm not going to let you do it, but I'll let your son do it. So David spent the rest of his life gathering up supplies to build the temple. And (coughs) whenever David passed, Solomon began to reign. He made alliances with all of these other nations around to ensure he got the best timber and he got all the best supplies. He had the silver and he had the gold and he had the marble and they had fine artisans and all this. And they built a temple that was beyond description. If you read the descriptions in the Old Testament, it's unbelievable. But you know, one of the things that struck me was when Solomon went to dedicate that temple. It's a beautiful prayer that he prays. But one of the things he says right at the very beginning, he says, Lord, we know that the heaven and heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this house that we've built. We put a lot of time, we put a lot of effort into this house. We, we want it to be a testimony, we want it to be great. He prays this beautiful prayer about what he wants the temple to be and to represent. But he says, we know, God, this house is not big enough for the lamb. This house that we have built is nowhere near big enough. And when, when Solomon made an end of praying and they offered all of those sacrifices and there were bulls and oxen by the thousand that they had sacrificed and they did all of that, the scripture said the spirit of the Lord fell, came in that place so strong that the priests were not able to minister. And it was as though the Lord said, I'm going to confirm what you said. This house cannot contain me. This house is not big enough for me. Now, sometimes when the scripture, when it talks about houses, and this is kind of a, an Elizabethan English thing, you know, the house of Israel. What, is, what does the scripture mean when it talks about the house of Israel? It's talking about a kingdom. We still use that terminology, not, probably not us Americans, but, you know, they talk about the house of Windsor and the house of York and these royal families. You study history, there's different royal houses, right? And the house of Israel was for a nation, and that that lamb that was at the day of atonement was for that whole nation. But Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost and he said, I want all the house of Israel to know assuredly that this same Jesus whom you crucified, the Lord, God has made him Lord of all. He's bigger even than the nation of Israel. Now, Peter didn't, Peter didn't fully believe it. And if One of my favorite chapters is Acts 10. And I don't know if I always preface every time I talk about Acts 10 with that little phrase. It's almost like I feel apologetic, but I'm not. It's Peter, Peter didn't, he was saying what the Lord was inspiring him to say, but I don't think it was registering in his conscious mind what he was actually saying. Because he said, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. You shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. That promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off. And in his mind, he was thinking your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren and as far in your lineage as you can see. But the Lord doesn't always think linearly. The Lord thinks broadly. He, he plays 4D chess while the rest of us are just sitting here trying to figure out how to get the oil changed in the car, you know. The Lord's got it all figured out. And it was time Cornelius was praying and the angel had gone to Cornelius and he was ready. And the Lord said, okay, Peter, I need you to go. And Peter was saying, I'm not sure about all this, Lord. And so the, you know the story. The sheet comes down. Finally, Peter gets convinced this is the Lord because three men show up and said, the Lord sent us here. And he said, I know you're here after me. But Peter was still being a wise man. He took some witnesses with him. Because it wasn't appropriate for a Jewish man to go into a Gentile home. Because they didn't follow the laws of kosher food and cleanliness and he would be unclean. He would not be able to participate, whatever. It just wasn't accepted that he would do that. He went down to the house of Cornelius. Because the lamb was too big even for the house of Israel. And he went into the house of Cornelius 
What's interesting to me is that when Cornelius sent for Peter, he had no guarantee that Peter would come. Right. I'm a Roman centurion and I'm going to send for this Jewish man who's going to come. And it's not common really for them to even come into our home, much less the fact that I'm a part of the Roman army. But he had heard from God and he had faith in what And so when he sent those messengers to Peter, in the meantime, he gathered all of his family up. So that when Peter shows up at their house, he doesn't walk into Mr. and Mrs. Cornelius and their children. He walks into a small congregation of people because Cornelius had gathered all of his family and his near kin together. And they were all in there waiting on him. And what did Peter say? They tried to worship. Peter said, no, 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 stand up. Yeah, I'm a man just like you are. But he said, I, of a truth, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. And that in every nation where there are men that believe and trust God, God will work and he will move. And while Peter was just talking about the crucifixion and he was talking about all of the things that had happened, he didn't lay his hands on anybody, he didn't touch anybody. But the scripture said they began to be filled with the Spirit while he was talking to them. And they began to speak with other tongues. And those Jewish witnesses that came with Peter, they were astonished that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost. Because the lamb's just a little too big for any one house. It could not be contained by the house of Israel. And so, beautiful thing because when Peter gets back, he sure enough gets in trouble because he went down to the Gentiles' house. So he takes his witnesses with him back to the council and he explains. He rehearses the whole thing. And you know what their response was? Peter told them, he said, the Holy Ghost fell on them as it did on us at the beginning. Because we saw it happen to the Gentile just like it happened to us. Now, some people will tell you, I'm, I'm on a little bit of a tear in my own personal life, I guess. I, I don't have much time for people that don't preach the truth. And, um, Pastor, you can clean this up later if you need to, but... I, 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 people that know Acts 2.38 and they know the Holy Ghost and they won't tell it, I, I don't have much time for that. Because what Peter said was when we went down there, we saw those good folks receive the Holy Ghost just like we did. And the council rejoiced that on the Gentiles was poured out repentance unto salvation. Did you hear that? Repentance unto salvation. They recognized this is a key experience. This is the new birth. This is the fulfillment of what Joel said. This is God pouring out his spirit on all people, upon all flesh. This house is too little for the lamb. You can't control it and I can't contain it. It's going everywhere. (laughs) And if if you roll back to Acts chapter 8, Philip went down and he preached and they repented. They believed everything he said. They got healings. They had people delivered. They had devils cast out. People were healed of the palsy and all sorts of things. And there was great joy and they were all rejoicing in the city. But when the word came back to Jerusalem that they had not yet received the Holy Ghost, they sent Peter and John down there to fix it. And they went and they laid hands on them and they received the Holy Ghost. And then everybody was rejoicing because the house is just a little too little for the lamb. Why don't we stand together tonight? We are so blessed. We are so blessed to have this Lamb of God. He's greater not only in purpose, but He's greater in domain, and He's greater also in power. The sacrifices in the Old Testament, think about all of the sacrifices of the Old Testament morning sacrifice, evening sacrifice, special occasions. Um, Hezekiah bringing religion back to Jerusalem, Solomon dedicating the temple, David sacrificing, bringing the ark back into Jerusalem. Think about all of those sacrifices. And the writer of the book of Hebrews said, if those sacrifices had been effective, they would have ceased to be offered, but they didn't. There was a continual offering, but Jesus sacrificed that lamb. The lamb of God was so powerful with one sacrifice. He brought it all to a stop.
Boom. We've, we've talked about how the high priest had to offer twice. He had to go in, take a sacrifice for himself into the mercy seat inside the holy place. And then he would come out having been sanctified and cleansed. He could then go and offer a sacrifice on behalf of the people. But the writer of the book of Hebrews said it wasn't with the blood of bulls or goats or anything else, but it was with his own blood. He went in once, once. Because there was no need for him to offer sacrifice on behalf of himself. He was greater in power. He went in one time into the holy place for all sin. Why don't we thank the Lord tonight? Thank you, Lord, for your great sacrifice. Thank you, Lord, for your great lamb. Thank you, Lord, for this lamb that's too big for our house. Hallelujah. We're so grateful, Lord. Give you honor and glory, Lord. Don't ever let us lose perspective, Lord, of the greatness of what you've accomplished in our lives and what is available to us and what is available to those that are around us. And help us realize, never forget, Lord, that our house is too little for this lamb. We'll never get it all consumed. We need to go somewhere and find somebody to help us consume and work on this lamb. We've got to reach, Lord, to those who need those with great needs, Lord, you're able to meet those needs, not be diminished. Lord, we thank you for it. We give you honor and praise in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. Amen, amen. Go from this place and purpose in your heart. You're going to take the lamb to somebody else's house and bring them to the house of the Lord on Sunday. Amen. To celebrate resurrection. Lord bless you. In Jesus' name. Amen.